Hi, welcome to the Cinematography Salon podcast, a show about celebrating cinematography and inspiring both the current and next generation of visual artists, exploring the latest trends, techniques, technologies, and culture, and featuring exclusive interviews with some of the most talented and innovative cinematographers working today. Hi everyone, today I'm thrilled to be back with Oren Sofer for a special interview at the renowned rental house Old Fast Glass. Today, Oren and I are actually both in person, and we're here sitting down with Mark LaFleur. Thank you to Mark for hosting us today at Old Fast Glass. Since we know we're going to dive into a lot of topics with Mark, we're planning to release this episode in two parts, so please tune in next week for part two. For anyone who hasn't heard of OFG, it's a rental house based in Sun Valley in Los Angeles. It offers full cinema camera packages, vintage lenses, modern lenses, professional accessories. This has been an episode that I've been personally super excited about since starting the show. OFG's become a really reliable house for me to visit and rent from when I'm in LA. I've had plenty of amazing experiences renting from them, following along on Instagram, and we're really excited to dive in with Mark. He's a wealth of knowledge on lenses and cinema in general. And yeah, while many rental houses focus on equipment inventory, I feel like OFG has taken a pretty unique approach by fostering community, serving as an educational hub, cultivating a distinct culture. And yeah, we're keen to hear from Mark today about the journey that brought them to this point and what lies ahead for Old Fast Glass. Thank you for having me. Thanks for making this happen. As far as that goes, as far as community, that came from a few different places. I think one was education and lens tests and workshops, which naturally just sort of brought people to a space, a physical space for more reasons than just picking up your gear or prepping your gear. Um, and that's just been building over time, but it also came from me being in a unique place where I was actually able to start Old Fast Glass from nothing because it, it did start in my apartment. And so the first time that we had a brick and mortar establishment, which the first two were not great, <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if either of you went to the first two. You can see the very first location in our, our big lens library. That's the background of all of the lens tests. Right. And then we didn't show pretty much anything from location two because it was that bad. But now where we are now, this is more um, of the space that I felt like we needed to be able to offer what I feel like a rental house should offer from, and I've always looked at that from the crew perspective, from the DP perspective, from I'm walking in the door, what happens as soon as I walk through that door? Because I have, as we all have in this business, I've walked into plenty of rental houses to pick up gear or even to the places that do both like rentals and sales. You get to walk in, you get to do a little market research, or even if you're not in my position, you, you're going to have some experience. And I've walked into somewhere, it is a building with no windows, where you walk into what might be the kitchen or where you clean things, right. or I don't know, or, or just like where a truck is parked. And no offense to any of those places, yeah. like everyone has a different system and our system might not work for everybody. But I just, I found that, I think there was a period where with a rental house, people came and they took your gear. It really didn't sort of matter what the space was. And I think through maybe these more boutique places that are opening up like Old Fast Class and competition and just, you know, different people getting involved in this industry, we've seen a change. And the change that we wanted was for people to walk in the door and feel like, oh, I'm this makes sense to me. I'm looking around. I'm inspired by the environment a little bit more. I feel very comfortable. I feel like I know where to go. Everyone's being really nice to me. It just, I wanted to feel as welcoming as possible, which is challenging being in a you almost sort of have to be in like sort of a kind of a warehouse environment to have enough space to do what we do. Yeah. But we wanted to feel a little more comfortable and a little more special. Hearing more about your story, it really clicked with me that this is a rental house that was created by a cinematographer. And I think that that is 
such an interesting element of this place compared to other places where maybe they're more focused on the business of it or or whatever. So it's really cool to hear you talk about, yeah, how you being a cinematographer has affected the way that you want cinematographers to experience Old Fast Glass. And, and one of the other things I also noticed was, especially at, I think, some of the most established rental houses is sometimes, I mean, everyone's usually, as soon as you get to talk to someone for a minute, they're friendly. But there's a lot of times you walk through the door and I don't know, there's a little sense of like two worlds or maybe everyone's so busy they don't want to maybe share information with me or maybe they don't have time for questions or something like that. And one of the things that was the most amazing feedback we ever got from, not ever maybe, but the, some of the best feedback we ever got from a client was it was someone who was just out of film school. Mm -hmm. And we had been a little bit established by the time they had started renting from us. And they said when they came here, they felt comfortable enough to ask stupid questions, to not feel like they were going to be judged by anyone, to be, they, they felt comfortable to, to admit that they were new to a lot of this. And I really liked that because we do lens tests, we do workshops where we are all about sharing knowledge. And I, it made me feel like there might be a little bit of gatekeeping that goes on. And I've seen that in the field as well. Some people not being ex as excited about the apprenticeships part of this business of sharing knowledge of like, kind of keeping knowledge to yourself because you might be my future competition or something like that. Whereas here it was like, no, we'll share everything and there is no stupid questions. And we're so excited when people ask questions because that shows that they're interested and they're willing to admit that they don't know everything. And that's great because when you pretend to know, <laughs> that's usually when mistakes happen, things get broken, things get hurt. So questions are great. And I, I just, I love that that client felt like he was in a place where he could be completely comfortable in any situation and no matter how stupid the question he thought he had was. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And it really is such a testament to the space that you've built and the environment that you've built here. The fact that somebody would feel so welcomed and comfortable to to ask that. And I think another factor that probably uh, plays into that is you guys are to supporting smaller projects and supporting student films and shorts and, and all sorts of stuff like I've certainly had some passion projects that we've worked with you guys on, and it's been like so amazing to to have that resource and have that kind of support. And I think that that's also something a little gatekeeping about the industry is at large that people maybe feel like larger rental houses or or more institutional rental houses, I should say, are inaccessible in that way because there there is this veneer of this is only for people at a certain caliber, and you just need to I don't know figure it out and get on by. But you guys have always been so welcoming to that kind of project. Like how conscious a decision is that? I mean, how much active work do you guys do like building those kinds of relationships? And can you talk a little bit about how maybe you see that as part of like future proofing the industry, but even like your business, right? Sure. Like that that must play play a role in that too, right? It does. I think there's the there's the obvious business side of it where a repeat client is the best client, right? So you can look at it just from a business side of things of if you meet someone early in their career when they're in film school and you support them, chances are if they have a good experience, they're going to come back. You know, that's that's pretty obvious. But what we noticed really early on were some of the film students turned out to be actually some of the best clients mm -hmm. in, in a few different ways. One, they tended to be extremely passionate about what they were doing because there's that moment where like this is my thesis i'm proving myself i'm putting all my ideas into this one thing they might be obsessing about it more than they will on projects in the future that actually are probably more important when they get to look back at their body of work but what i love is is that passion and we we have students that come out with zero budget 
but they're going to spend a full day doing lens tests. They're going to obsess about the project. They're going to have a whole deck together of why they went with these lenses. And they also, it's, they seem to, because maybe because some of it's new and we have some unique kind of historical optics here, their eyes are really big when they get here. They're like, they're like, I'm in a special place. These lenses are special. I'm so excited to be using these for the first time. So they're sort of respectful of, of the gear They you know, they haven't been like jaded of like, I've shot in those a hundred times, you know, and that combination of kind of passion and intrigue and interest it results in, in someone who's really amazing to work with. They tend to be then so excited about their project. And as you both know, we're very big on sharing our clients work when they share it with us. And because for us, it's, you know, no better way of being able to show other clients like what these lenses can do when, you know, put in the right environments with the right people in the right hands. And when we get to, when we celebrate their work, it's sort of like, I think it all also comes full circle where it's like, yeah, this was your, this is your student thesis. Look how beautiful this is. Nope. It's not in a theater. It might not be winning any awards, but it's gorgeous. And you set out to do something, you made these choices and you did it. And then so many of these students, the second they graduate, also their careers blow up. And so now they've come here, they've already tested stuff. They sort of know us, they know the gear. Now they've got different kinds of projects. They remember that other set of lenses they tested when they were here for a lens test. And now they're back at it. And they're just like, they start coming here every week. And I think the other big thing for me is I've been on the other side of the production where I have a project that I am very passionate about, a passion project. Yeah. I'll have when everyone hears those two words, they know it means there's no budget, but it is important. The work is important. And I've been there. I've been in that position where I'm asking for all the favors. Can I shoot in your backyard? Can I use your cool vintage car to be in my shot? You know, can I use your dog <laughs> to be in my <laughs> shot? Every favor, including gear, borrowing gear from friends. So I've been there. And for me, this has always been about relationships. Do we get each other? Do we like what we're doing? Do I love your work? Do you like what we're doing? Let's be partners in this. And that means you're going to have a job that has a bad budget once in a while or no budget once in a while. And we don't want to leave you high and dry. We want to be able to take care of you. And what is amazing is we've had clients that have had a few of those in a row. You know, they've done quite a few passion projects or low budget projects in a row. And then they come back and they're like excited. Like we have a good budget for you. And, and it, I love that excitement. I, I hope it doesn't come from guilt. I hope it's <laughs> really like, we're all just excited that like, all right, there are pro projects that are properly budgeted. We all win. And, and that's what I love is like, we're in this together. We're part of your production. You know, it's low budget for you. It's low budget for us. We know at some point we're going to get a good one. I don't think there's, I'd say there's none or near none as far as people that are like using us for our generosity. I think everyone truly is like, look, I don't have any money on this one. Can you hook us up? So that is never going to stop, you know, no matter how, I don't want to grow this into old fast glasses popping up in a bunch of cities or anything like that. I think it'll always just be this one shop, but that part is never going to stop. We're always going to be working with students. We're always going to be helping out people when they don't have a budget. And if you spend enough time here, you see the same people here every week. And I love that. We're really building a community. You know? That's fantastic. Yeah. And I think it, it should be safe to assume that, and maybe people don't necessarily leap to this conclusion unless they think about it that if it wasn't sustainable for you guys to do that and to, to offer that kind of support, you wouldn't do it. But obviously it is. So like it's out there and it's a big part of it. And yeah, it's a great, it's a great thing. Yeah. For everybody. It's interesting too, because I feel like it also gets back to the fact that you're 
coming at it from a cinematographer's perspective because I think for us as cinematographers, like we try to make those investments in directors as well. It's like we'll do passion projects for directors and then eventually maybe they'll bring us a commercial or maybe they'll bring us a bigger project. And so that mentality really rings true like from you owning the shop and the way that you run it with how DPs are used to kind of like, yeah, I'm going to like, you know, make this investment or do this favor for someone and then hopefully, you know, down the line it, it, it comes full circle. It's funny that you that like you made that direct connection because I, I don't think I thought about that so specifically and how similar it is where it's that thing of I want to work with this director or this is going to give me something I really want for my reel. Mm -hmm. And lately that that a lot of times is I'm I feel like I'm even pushing gear on people like when I get new lenses, I'm directly reaching out to people sometimes of just like hey, we just got this lens in and I really want to share with people how great it is. I don't want to just shoot something in our studio or outside. I'd really like to see some real world stuff. And so whenever someone, whoever's in our orbit at that time, we're usually like, hey, do you want to check this out? And we had one recently where our Cinegear opened house and we sort of revealed this new zoom lens and we had a, a client picking up that Friday. I told him before everybody what the lens was and he was like, oh, that's exactly the range I'm looking for for this project. And he's like, Anyway, I can get it. I can get you like footage right away, <laughs> like some stills from it right away. I was like, yes, we showed off the lens at, at the event. And then he came back at like 10 PM as we were like cleaning up, picked up the lens, used it, had a 6 AM call the next day, used it. And sure enough, the footage was absolutely gorgeous. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's, um, I feel like that DP that's trying to get something for my reel or make a relationship with when it comes to our gear of just like, we got this new thing in and a lot of times, some of the stuff we have there is no sample I can show anyone. Yeah. That lens we just got, I can't even find anything online. Like if you Google Fujinon 28 to 280, nothing comes up. Right. Literally nothing. Never mind footage. There's nothing. Yeah. And so for me to be able to talk to someone, get them excited about it, say, hey, use this. I know you're going to like it. And then they do, they like it. And we get this footage. Like it, it's amazing. And we're no joke building our real um, right. of sample footage of real world sample footage of our clients of lenses that, um, you know, until the past few years, no one's really even seen many of them. Mark, I've been really excited to have you on the show and chat with you because I just want to geek out about lenses. Yes. Uh, and have been eager to do so for a long time. I want to just dive into the overall philosophy of lens selection and vintage glass in particular. Like for me as a DP, it's really apparent that over the last 15 years, like since the advent of digital, lenses have kind of become the new film stock. Up until a certain point in film production, lenses were more of a technical necessity. There were obviously different quirks that came from different lenses and cinematic processes like anamorphic and improvements in spherical lens technology like over the years. But I don't know if a lot of manufacturers at that time were, were intentionally designing lenses with a look in mind. It was more about engineering precision and so on to lend as much like of a neutral starting point for film emulsion exposure. And now with the advent of digital, which has sort of leveled the playing field of the acquisition side of things, uh, whereas previously you would be making different film stock choices to achieve different looks and different development processes, since that has all been evened out, lenses are now the number one tool for a DP, I think, to imbue a project with a specific point of view and a specific aesthetic which dovetailed perfectly with the opening of Old Fast Glass and the start of this business and and people's interest in vintage glass. So yeah, can you talk to us a little bit about your thoughts about that and your feelings towards lenses and how that's maybe evolved uh, throughout the history? Absolutely. I think that since the 1800s, something as early as like the Petsfall 
design, which was like, here's a fast aperture portrait lens. And everything about its crazy character, its super swirly bokeh, no one at that time was talking about that. That was, oh my God, we're shooting a 58 millimeter lens at about F2. This is groundbreaking. So even back then, it wasn't about character. It was about performance. It was about what are we trying to achieve engineering-wise, performance-wise. And I feel like the ultimate culmination sort of pinnacle of that was something like around, and I think the Master Primes like sum that up very well. Master Primes are T13. You can shoot them at wide open. They're at peak performance, wide open. And then on the engineering part of it, like from a camera assistant side, big focus scale, tons of markings, spaced out, so smooth, glow in the dark. It was just like standard 114 fronts. Like everything about them were like, okay, this is making our job easier. High contrast lenses that can get you really deep blacks and, and accurate. You know, with film, if you're shooting, um, if you're shooting wide open, especially on film, your camera has to be calibrated perfectly. The lenses have to be calibrated perfectly. You have to put a lot of trust in your equipment. So when you look back at some of the equipment that was being used to shoot film, you sort of understand why they were shooting at maybe F8. And things have evolved so much with film. And then, yes, when digital came out, it reset the rules for everything. It's, all right, here's our image. What we're seeing on the monitor is what we're getting. We know if this is in focus or not. Um, film is literally moving at all times. Even when it's stationary 24 fr frames per second, it's still moving a little bit. And the grain structure from one frame to the next is different, is unique. So there's movement. You need precision. And so I actually genuinely feel like I would argue if you talk to most engineers, character was probably very low um, on the priorities. It was, we are correcting for aberrations. Mm -hmm. We are correcting for spherical aberration and chromatic aberration. We are, with Master Primes, it was like, what aberration is left? Breathing. Let's eliminate focus breathing. And Barrel distortion too, right? Yeah. Those lenses are super rectilinear, even the, even the really wides, like yep. they, they really nailed that. Exactly. That issue. And Cook S4s are great and Pan Panavision Primos are great. Those were all sort of like getting us like out of the 90s into the 2000s of like optical perfection. And then digital really did change all that. And so if you think about the idea that everyone has always been striving for optical perfection, right? Let's correct as many aberrations as possible. All you have to do is really go back in time as far as you want to go is in, in regards to that, which is why today I think the optical engineer's job is a lot harder because if you're designing with character in mind, you're like, all right, so where do we screw up? Where do we intentionally make the lens worse from an engineering perspective? And these things that we love, like bokeh, especially when stopped down, when the iris blades are, are having an effect on bokeh and lens flares, I would argue again, I doubt many engineers were thinking about what that did to the image. Aperture is a really interesting one. Like if you look at our Lomo super speeds, when they had their original irises, they're one of those irises that do a crazy dance where they start to have like almost saw blades that then rotate and become rounded again. The B speeds with that triangular iris, which isn't three blades, it's actually nine. And when you look at the iris scale on both of those lenses, what you'll notice that's unique to today, almost everything's like a circular iris, especially all the rehouse lenses. Yeah. And you notice on the circular iris lenses, from wide open, let's say 1.4 to 2.8, it's a very long throw. From 2.8 to 4, it's half that. And it keeps getting cut in half. Right. So that by the time you get from 11 to 16, you're barely moving the iris. Those lenses that have that crazy iris design, it's completely linear. As you stop down, it's you're moving at the exact same distance between each stop. So it was an engineering thing. It had nothing to do with the look. The bonus, either good or bad, about any of those decisions are it affects bokeh in some way that now a cinematographer is looking at the engineer. I guarantee you never considered it. It was just like, no, we want a linear T-stop. 
And some people were like, what are these crazy saw blade images I'm getting in my out of focus highlights? Mm -hmm. But the intention was to have a completely different function. So I love that so many of these things that we find beautiful now, I believe were completely engineering side effects. You could even say accidents. Yeah. And so that for me, it's like, all right, let's go back. And most of our lenses, we have some lenses from the forties and even thirties, but there really was this magical time about nine, 1960s to seventies where lenses were good enough for what we need as far as like a lens resolving for a digital sensor to be just as sharp as we need it to be, but also having all of this beauty that I don't believe was intentional. I believe it was just, these are the limits of the times. This is the coatings we're using right now. These are the manufacturing processes we're using right now. These are the computers or not computers we're using right now. And so all of these things that we have that we would call beautiful and vintage lenses, you're not really seeing it in modern lenses because the technology we have to create lenses, to design lenses is so far beyond that, that I don't think an engineer would even consider making some of those decisions. Yeah. But of course now a lot of lens manufacturers are intentionally designing lenses yeah. with character in mind. I wonder what the tipping point was for that. You know, recently I rewatched the films of Owen Roisman when he passed away. And if you go back and watch like the taking of Pelham one, two, three, and some of these movies that he shot in the seventies, it's actually wild. Like he's shooting wide open anamorphics on the New York subway and on location. And the images are soft. I mean, yeah. the top and bottom of the frame is completely falling apart. It's super underexposed lens flares everywhere. And a part of me always wonders watching that, like, did they, did he like that at the time? Did he see those as flaws or was there intentionality the way there would be now? Like somebody now would intentionally choose shooting on those lenses. And I don't recall what it was. It might've been Todd AOs or something, or maybe it was Panavisions. I can't remember, but some seventies anamorphic lens. And now somebody would go to that lens for those flaws, yeah. right? And I wonder what the tipping point was when it really switched over. And I'm also curious what you think about, I still encounter to this day, a little bit of tension between people who firmly believe that, for example, like a lens has a sweet spot. Like, oh, well, if you shoot on this and this anamorphic lens, you really should shoot it at a T5.6 because mm -hmm. anything wide open than that is quote unquote unusable right. or doesn't resolve. And that there's like a sweet spot of the lens from a technical standpoint. And you obviously run a rental house and have to keep in mind like the technical proficiency of a lens and understand where that sweet spot is from an engineering standpoint and all of that. But philosophically, like for me personally as a GP, like I really reject that concept. And I think that there is no correct way to shoot a lens or to expose a lens. Or, you know, if you want to shoot a vintage anamorphic that barely resolves wide open for that look, then that's intentional, right? Have you encountered that tension? Like, do you deal with that in any way? Have you thought about that? I think that really, that really comes down to the cinematographer and how much they do obsess about those technical aspects. And, and I think you can make so many arguments for, should you worry about the sweet spot? Should you shoot this shot wide open? Should you shoot this shot stop down? Like I, I've had projects where I was shooting almost all of my content with let's say talent at like a two eight. And now I'm shooting an establishing shot of just the home. And most of it's going to be in focus anyway, because I'm focusing to a house that's 25 feet away. So it's all in focus. I would tend to stop most of that stuff down to a five, six and eight just to get rid of any aberrations, just to keep contrast, just to make sure things are in focus. I don't want there to be some, especially on an anamorphic, these distracting edges maybe on, on that shot. Whereas when you have a face in the frame, you want people's attention going to the face. Maybe you're okay with letting things go. Right. Th that fall off can be quite nice in, in, in a portraiture yeah. situation. Yeah. So I feel like even within the one project, depending on what's going on in frame, I'll 
change that, you know, I'll, and then sweet spot to me, I talk about sweet spot with clients more of, especially when they're using some of our vintage spherical lenses that have heavy fall off or anamorphic lenses that have heavy fall off where it's like, all right, are you just shooting one person in frame? You can probably ride that line of like center or just off center and their eyes, you can still kind of pull off rule of thirds. Cause I'm sure you've seen even some of the modern lenses. If you try to get someone's eyes too close to the top of the frame, even around a two eight, sometimes you can lose them and it's not, they're out of focus. There's nothing there. You can't resolve it. Yeah. And so if you know you're going to be bumping into the top or bottom of your frame, if you know, you're going to have a shot with like four talent in frame on a lens that has a very small sweet spot, then you either change the lens or you have to stop down. I just had this conversation about our Lomo uh, round fronts with the client. He just returned them today. He's in love with them. And he did have to ride that line a little bit because they had a few shots on the 35 millimeter where they had multiple people in frame super sharp in the center. And I would argue that's its sweet spot if you're center framing a person, but then he would have these shots where it was like a few people in frame. And it's like, no matter what you do, person in the center of the frame is going to be sharp person over here on the right or left is not. Yeah. So we had to go to a five, six out of sort of necessity. Yeah. So I think that does tie into lens testing that, and that can even be just a conversation with us before you go out of, Hey, I'm shooting this and this and this, is there anything I need to worry about? Is there any concerns I have? And we'll try to help people from avoiding those missteps of like, oh no, I didn't light for a five, six in this nighttime exterior group shop. That's really actually where I need to be right now to resolve everyone. All right, I'm just gonna have to let it go. And these people are gonna be kind of soft over here. Mm -hmm. But as far as like, but applying that thinking to let, let's say something like a master prime or a cook S4, something that is performing really well from center to edge, I wouldn't worry about sweet spot at that point. To me, it's more about depth of field of just like, how much do I want to keep in focus? Do I want, is it distracting that from their eyes to their ears all the, already out of focus? Or am I shooting on a really bad looking set and I want to put it as far out of focus as possible so that people can't see it. So sweet spot is such a long conversation. Yeah. I guess to me, it comes down to personal taste ultimately. And, and, and I, I, I've always just bristled a little bit at the idea that like you should, I just don't like the word should, like I agree. you should shoot it at, at this lens, at this stop or whatever. It, it all comes down to, yeah, when you're framed up on a super tight close-up of a face, do you want both eyes in focus or do you like that one of them's out of focus? Exactly. It, it, it just comes down to that. Or sometimes there are certain technical considerations, like if you're framing a two shot and you're on a medium lens, wide open, uh, and your characters are maybe slightly offset. Like sometimes maybe it just doesn't look good that one of them's slightly out of focus and you would rather hold both of them at the same time. So yeah, but ultimately it comes down to personal uh, preference and taste. And uh, that's only something you can figure out from testing and experience and learning what you like and not yeah. having somebody tell you, I guess, like this is what you should do and yeah. more just figuring out what you want to do and what you like. Whenever I have those conversations, there's usually asterisk, asterisk, asterisk right. everywhere. Where like we've got the Zelma Santamorphics and they're- Love they're, those, by the way. They're really great. Yeah. The 32 and the 40 are sitting at customs right now. Oh, really? Those are interesting because they remind me of some of our vintage lenses that there are a couple of really fast lenses in this set. And just because there is a, a T-stop on the lens, does that mean you should shoot it all the time? Like, oh, this lens, the 60 is a 1.6. Hmm. Does that mean you should shoot 1.6 all the time? Or if I tell you the set does really well out of 2.8, should you shoot 2.8 all the time? No, I think it really does come down, like you said, to the shot. That set cleans up so well at a 2.8, and they end up being very consistent. As you do lens swaps, you can really put someone almost anywhere in frame, and they're going to hold resolution. They're not going to go out of focus like they were well in that Lomo I was talking about. Yeah. But are you going to have a moment where you want to shoot 
that one six, but you might have that moment where something really dramatic is happening and a character is like going into their own head and you want to throw everything out of focus and you don't care how funky it gets, shoot it wide open. That's what I love about some of our faster anamorphics like the Cineo Visions, where you can shoot them at a 2.8. It can even compare to some like Panavision, slightly more modern Panavision lenses at like a 2.8, a 4. But if you go all the way and go to a 1.4, all of a sudden it's another lens. So you really have like two lens sets in, in your camera bag. And I think that that's really great, but it's good to know that. It's good to know that, can I push it here? Yes. But is it going to work for every situation? Maybe not. But that comes back to testing of, you need to have that information going into it. Mm-hmm. So that's either a conversation or better, really, when you do a lens test, uh, especially on vintage lenses, what happens when I stop down? What changes? And to me, the rules are very different with anamorphic and spherical as well. And rules is not a word I like to use, but the approach should be different. So many of my favorite lenses and spherical, they look their best wide open. And so that can be a challenge if it's a really fast lens. And if you're on like a, especially a full frame sensor where, wow, this lens looks its best at a one four. It's so gorgeous, but my AC is so mad right now. <laughs> and it could even be arguably distracting. As they move, we're constantly racking and they're drifting in and out of focus. That might be good for a certain type of scene, but maybe not for two people just like sitting in and having a conversation at a table. We're thinking about that a lot with some of the new lens projects we have of like, all right, where's the, to me, the sweet spot of the lens is where's the character most beautiful. Exactly. And if that's at a really crazy stop, well then maybe not a lot of people are actually going to be able to take advantage of that if it's too extreme. But if that sweet spot is like T2 or T8 even, where maybe slightly more people are shooting for your sort of standard kind of coverage, well, that might be a really great thing to explore because you're sort of getting the best of both worlds. You're sort of getting the depth of field you might need for most situations, but you're getting the full beauty of the lens at the same time. So sweet spot is, <laughs> there's there's a lot to discuss there. I feel like the dialogue you have with your clients is, is pretty unique. And I love that you've taken this approach of like you, you won't buy a set of lenses that you can't honestly recommend to a client and i'd love to just hear like a little bit more about that philosophy of wanting everything to be within your you know realm of taste because i think that goes a really long way and i think you've developed a kind of like what you were saying by almost building a reel of clients work it's like yeah there is sort of a look now and there's sort of like an ethos around what kind of images you can achieve going through this rental house and i also think that a whole nother conversation too which we kind of touched on a little bit is like the way that your Instagram feed and all the lens tests that have been performed here have kind of demystified a lot of the highly technical aspects of this field and allowed people that immediate feedback is really important, I think, for DPs to be able to just quickly jump on to your Instagram and look at things and be able to just make decisions quickly. I found myself at a prep recently, literally like with my AC being like, well, wait, I saw them post something and I think that's the piece of equipment we need. And then we like grabbed it and it was like, perfect. And I was, yeah, so it's that's actually becomes a really interesting tool. I'd love to hear a kind of yeah, about demystifying some of the technical stuff and making things more accessible to clients and having those conversations with clients that are way more qualitative. And, you know, a lot of rental houses would just be like, sure, we got another set of these if you need that, or we can fill it in with this lens because it's the focal length you need, but there's not those like more nuanced conversations happening. It is very important to me. I want to preface that with, I genuinely believe this is not bullshit. I genuinely believe there is no bad lens. I genuinely believe that it's all about pairing the tool to the job and to the client and what they're trying to achieve. I um, So if there's a set of lenses we don't have here, it's usually one of two reasons. It's, it's either I really don't find that interesting or I think they're similar to something else that might be slightly better. 
And we're still a small boutique shop in many ways. We um, we just don't have enough capital. It's as simple as that to buy every lens set. You could easily just, if you have enough money, you can buy everything and then rent it out and you will have a successful business. But we can't afford everything. So if you're going to be particular about what you buy, and I think honestly, most rental houses do have to be choosy. Nobody can afford to buy them all. Lenses are expensive. And so for me, it's like, all right, I think our inventory says as much about what we have as it does about what we don't have. And those are conscious decisions. There are lens sets out there that I think are fine, but I think that maybe there's more interesting options. I want to be able to genuinely tell you, yes, use this lens. I'm excited about this lens. I would use this lens. To me, that makes it very easy for me because then you can just tell me something about your project. What are your limitations? Does it need to be fast, slow? Does it matter how big it is, heavy it is, close focus? And I can usually give you a few good options that I think this sounds like what you're looking for. And I know you're going to be happy with any of these. And also if you're coming for a test, here's also three or four other options that maybe we didn't have a total understanding of what the project is, but maybe one of these is close to what you want. And then you find it through testing. It's, it's also one thing I want to talk about is it's also an incredibly crowded market of lenses. I'm sure. I mean, it's always on my mind. I'm sure you guys are seeing this too, of just like every month there's a new lens set coming out and those companies that are selling them and the rental houses that are buying them, they're going to market them hard. They're going to push them hard. And that doesn't mean that they're good or better than something else. And so I think it's the rental house's duty to sort of go out there and figure out, is this worth buying? Is this worth having on our shelves? Or no, that sort of does what this other set we have has, but I think that set does it better. And so I think it's up to us to sort of be that bridge of deciding you probably don't need to look at this. Or if you do have a project that comes up and you feel like you really need that, maybe we'll sub rent it for you or something like that. But the lenses that we have here, I want to be able to, to put any lens we have here in your, in your hand and know that if it's the right pairing, as far as it's what you need for your project, you are going to be happy with it at the end of the day. I had a client working with another rental house, not in Los Angeles. And they recommended a set of lenses that was, I'm not kidding, the absolute opposite of what they needed. They wanted sharp, contrasty, capable modern lenses, and they recommended the funkiest, lowest contrast, crazy set of lenses they had because no one was renting them and they were on the shelf, right? Simply on the shelf. And I think that that is incredibly short-sighted because, okay, you got them on that project, you made that money, you got your set of lenses to stop working and they made some money. But that client either is going to return those after day two or three, or is not going to trust your opinion in the future. And for us, this is completely about trust. If you couldn't come in for a lens test and you just told me about your project and your demands, I would want to be able to be like, I'm sending you these lenses and I know you're going to be happy. I'm going to ship you one set. Trust me, you're going to love it. So for us, that goes back to that partnership thing and that long-term relationship building that we're doing where we want you to be able to just say, here's sort of what my project is. What do you think? What would you recommend? And especially you've been here to lens test. There's only so much time in the day. If you came in and tested every set we have for a given project, you can't do it. You can't do it properly. No. It would take a week. And so it's up to us to sort of narrow it down, right? So at least we're doing that for you. Right. And that narrowing down is also happening through the catalog of lens testing and all the things that you're able to share, which is so helpful to be able to just condense the time necessary to land on the thing you need is is so helpful. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the Instagram actually and the lens testing area because you guys did something really, really clever that I think is quite notable, which is you've designed this very visually distinct lens testing area. 
that is a part of the brand identity, right? Anytime somebody does a lens test in your facility, they almost don't even need to say that it's at Old Fast Glass. Can you talk a little bit about like where that thought came from? It's, it's quite unique in the rental world. Where did that idea come from? Like, was there some specific inspiration behind it or some specific thought behind it? Like, talk us through it a little bit. The It started in, I guess it was 2015 or 2016 when we did the first big lens test. That was our spherical lens test. And so at the time, we were already getting a collection of lenses that was fairly unique. And just the fact that some of them were vintage and, and we were still just the idea of shooting on all these different vintage lenses was still relatively new for a lot of cinematographers. So, and I don't think lens testing and sharing lens tests wasn't what it is now. It wasn't something that everyone was doing. So again, when you went to do research and you were like, oh, let me see what K35s look like, you didn't find much. And you even if you found something, you didn't know if you could sort of trust it. And so when we started the first lens test, it was very important to me that I wanted our setup, which was had the limitations of our space. So we had to shoot it there and we knew we'd be shooting for all day. So we had to eliminate daylight. But we also wanted it to be something that was nice to look at that felt a little bit like a real world environment, but was also sort of iconic. Because the idea was if you did a search for a lens test and you got all these thumbnails that came up for videos, we would want you to see ours with that model in between those two orange lamps with the blue background behind her. No, oh, that's an old fast class test. I can trust this test because I know they've explained their testing parameters. They always did it the same way. They kept it consistent. There was a, even if you didn't maybe agree with the way that we tested, we explained what we did. So you sort of knew what you were getting. And we tested every lens at multiple stops and tried to test all aspects of it in a nice little like two minute video. So the idea was, if it's iconic enough, it will be easy for people to find it. And then again, it's like once the word got out and people realized, oh, there's a library of these. Again, it just sort of helped the search because they're all just YouTube videos that are embedded in places. So it's so easy to find them. So if you do any search, you can just, up oh, there's that model again. There she is. That's an old fast class test. I can, I can trust that. And I do think you touched upon it a little earlier. I do think there are some companies they feel, and I think they're wrong, they feel it's actually better to put less out there, to let their products remain a little mysterious rather than have their stuff out there where people can do a side-by-side -side comparison. Mm -hmm. And the sad thing is these, not, these unnamed big companies, their lenses would do great in a lens comparison test. That's the sad irony of it, yeah. but they are being protective of it because I think it's better, I think in their eyes they feel it's better, less is more, let's keep things mysterious, let's be gatekeepers, Let's make people come here for that information. Whereas for us, it was always, we believe in these lenses. We're going to show you everything. And you're going to see the things that they struggle with. Some lenses have heavy breathing, chromatic aberration. They don't cover the sensor you're trying to cover. Crazy fall off. Maybe they're just not sharp. We're showing you everything. We're not leaving anything out. Let you decide, is this right for our project? So the intention of the space to be unmistakable looking was very intentional. The rest of it is, is really one thing I wanted to kind of circle back on because I think it's an interesting kind of gets to the core of like vintage lenses as it pertains to like digital sensors. And it's this idea that vintage lenses plus digital cameras does not require filtration. And I'd love to kind of hear both your thoughts on like on that conversation about filtration, how vintage lenses are capable of softening the digital sensor to an extent that maybe filtration isn't as necessary. What are your thoughts on that? And how does OFG stock filtration or not stock filtration? Or I think that, yes, there are vintage lenses that can give you some of the characteristics that some of those filters can give you. I think the advantage of filters is ultimate level of control. 
where you might want some halation around like a, a, a highlight and the lens might, that lens might do it, but it might need a lot more, a much brighter source, or it might be doing it more than you want. And how that changes from wide lenses to long lenses, which is one of the reasons why there's so many strengths of some of these filters. I think it really helps give you consistency. I think sometimes it's a, it, it will end up being a mix of both, but there's things that lenses can do that filters can't. There's things that filters do that, that lenses can't. I think the less glass you put in front of the lens, the better for so many reasons, unwanted reflections, loss of resolution. Also, just like if you pile enough pieces of glass in front of it, your focus marks start to shift just slightly. Like it, it really is not, it's causing issues. Anytime you put glass in front of glass, there is going to be a negative effect as well. And no matter how good the filter is. And so that's one of the reasons why I love that so many of the cameras have built in NDs now too. If you don't have to put an ND in front of the lens, great. Uh, but, you know, polarizers do things that vintage lenses or no lenses can do. I like polarizers even in interiors. I like to control, you yeah. know, reflections and skin tones and stuff. We've got so many kinds of diffusion filters. We also are creating some of our own. We're creating specialty filters. To us, again, that comes from the cinematographer side of it. Of I brought filters on every job with me, even with vintage lenses, even with modern lenses. And some of the other stuff that we're making, like kaleidoscopes that you can rotate with a motor and stuff like that. To me, it's like, what do you want to do in this project? I want to say, yes, we've got something to do that. Or maybe you don't even know. And like, hey, do you have any new weird toys in here? Do you have weird prisms and stuff? Sure, have a look at them. Here's our box of those. And maybe something will inspire you. Or the director. Yeah, I mean, my personal very subjective feeling on it is uh i can't stress enough this really this applies to me uh, that the, <laughs> the, the, nobody should like take this as as gospel but for me personally i just uh i like simplicity the more i can simplify the cinematographic process the better so that's why i don't like filters is because it's it's an extra complication and if i can get an interesting look that i'm after from a lens and nowadays there's pretty much every possible like look you, you know there's lenses that give you halation there's lenses that give you blooming highlights there's lenses that are cleaner and sharper so it's like i can get that from the optics um i also philosophically like surrendering a part of the the process to chance like i don't necessarily need that level of control like oh the halation on the quarter black promised is not quite enough so maybe i'm just going to go up to the half like i don't care about that like i like that when you throw on a lens you don't always know what it's going to do and you sort of just have to give into that a little bit. But yeah, if I could shoot without a bat box, I, I would. Obviously, uh, there's certain practical filters that you need, NDs and polarizers. But outside of that, I, I typically don't carry filters. But it's also the reason like I only like shooting on one or two focal lengths. It's, it's the simplicity of it. It's like there's just an optical and cinematic and aesthetic simplicity to limiting your focal lengths and not using filters and all of these things. It's all just to strip away the, the pile on of stuff. I just don't yeah. like stuff. That's, less things, that's just my personal thing. Less things in front of the lens is a good way of putting it. I had to have a conversation with the director once where like they were really pushing for a very strong like promise type filter on like a beautiful set of primes and I was like the filter costs $400 and the primes are like 20000 each. Sometimes it's just as simple as like yeah what are you putting in front of something yeah. that is so inherently yeah. like valuable and stunning and yeah. tried and true and yeah yeah i mean also personally for me i find most filters cheesy to be honest like i, I don't really love diffusion filters except for smoke filters and i only like smoke filters because they don't look like a diffusion filter like when you throw them up they really do look like atmosphere like it's an amazing filter but it's amazing yeah yeah it's taken me a long time to get confident with using certain like light 
grades of per, uh, like black pearlescent and things like that other dps have like turned me on to it because like i was recently doing a studio shoot k35s and like the black pearlescent did lift the blacks in a way that gave it that look of shooting on film to me where like things were just lifted a little and i was like oh it's not really affecting too much other than that and yeah that localized like localizing the effect in certain ways can be can be really pleasing yeah um, it can but then just for me it's i i find personally again that uh, like, I, I just like doing that stuff in post you know like yeah. i just like doing that stuff in the grade because on set it, it, again it's just like i don't like futzing with too much stuff on set there's not enough time anyway i think that's the big thing for me is when i was shooting a lot i welcomed limitations because i think that if you had all the time and all the budget in the world i think you could very easily get to that point of just frame fucking where you're just all right let's move that over a little bit let's do this and then everyone on set is waiting for this perfection to happen and actors are getting out of their element and everyone's getting tired and it, it's not fun anymore when you have those limitations i think it can be very freeing and it can be a much more just fun process but yeah we have and we're consciously getting more vintage lenses that do a lot of what some of the most popular filters do when it comes to like lower contrast halation those kinds of things we have some that just do it in the lens yeah and if it does i, I mean i agree with you if you can get away with not having a map box it's a little nicer way to shoot. Mark, this has been absolutely incredible spending this time with you and having this amazing conversation. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us and, and letting us into your office and your beautiful space. We wanted to close out with uh, sort of a personal like flavor question, and it's a two-parter. First question is, what was the first set of uh, vintage lenses that you bought? Okay, the first question's easy. So the first set of lenses we got for cinema lenses came about after testing and testing and testing. I ended up with the humble zeiss super speeds they are fast at a t13 i genuinely feel that they are no problem shooting at a t13 they cover beyond super 35 so anyone who wants to put them on alexis 35 open gate guess what they cover they have decent close focus the wide lenses don't breathe very much the flares are beautiful they're just so well rounded and they do have that there's something about that zeiss leaded legacy glass that makes skin tones just look so gorgeous so the first time you compare lenses like size super speeds to something really modern like side by side it's so hard to describe what it is but i don't know what it is you can see it there's like this little kind of low contrast milky thing that happens to skin that looks unbelievable yeah. and modern lenses can't quite do it so that was an easy one and then when i got them it was like no regrets they're still one of my favorite sets of lenses i would still use them for projects they're still a go-to choice and they're still a popular set for people even with all the options that we have now yeah and there's a rehousing project too with them right which is recent yes so there's a few flavors of, of super speeds there were the original b speeds of the triangular iris which yep. we have rehoused and we kept the original triangular iris in those and then i'm so excited we just got our first set of rehoused super speeds and for anyone who's used them especially camera assistants know especially on the 50 and the 85 as you focus, they trombone in and out, and it's a skinny focus gear. And if you have a skinny gear on your motor, it will slip off. Love it. All right. Well, next week, people will have to tune in to hear the second part of the question, which is, what's your favorite set of lenses? Well, Mark, seriously, thank you so, so much, not only for everything you're doing with Old Fast Glass, but for taking the time to talk with us today. And we can't wait for uh, people to hear this episode. Thank you for having me. This has been amazing. And... I hope we can do it again because I can talk about lenses as long as you want. <laughs> God, we would love that. This episode of the Cinematography Salon podcast was produced by Peter Pascucci, Oren Sofer, and David Kruta with original music by One Wave. 
We created this episode in partnership with the Cinematography Salon, and we would like to extend a special thanks to the salon community for sourcing topics for this episode. If you enjoyed listening to the episode, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episodes and news. Thanks.